out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the American experimental rock band all the way from San Francisco. This is Oxbow, because I recently spoke to Eugene Robinson to find out more about life, love, poetry. My God, and so much more. Anyway, this is quite an amazing interview, I see. Um, Yes, it is. Anyway, look, I'm just going to get on with it. So um, after many minutes of casual chat with Eugene... To, uh, yes, as you do, the, in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that uh, very exciting subject that was the formative years of young Eugene. Eugene, it's over to you. I, I was born in 62, um, and I think my first exposure uh, to music would have been my, uh, something my mother had done. And she gave me a turntable, a turntable. It, it was like a little uh, record player in a box. Uh, like a like a lunch box or, or a hat box and you op- flipped up the top and inside there was a spindle for you to put your 45s mm-hmm. and you know this heavy tone arm that can kind of came across and she said this is to play music on and here's some records and if you take care of it you can keep it and keep using it if you mess it up I'm going to take it away from you so I understood that it was a real special treat and I had uh, I had three 45s that I played sort of religiously uh, and this is now now we're talking me being about three years old. I mean, almost maybe even pre-language um, because I remember her telling me that, but I don't remember me responding. So it could be two or three years old. And the records were The Beatles, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And the second record was Ray Charles, um, bus- uh, Busted. And then I don't remember what the B-side was. Uh, third was, uh, no, there were four. Third was Fats Domino. Blueberry Hill, right, and then the fourth was a uh, James Brown uh, 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 forty-five, and so these are records that you know. Uh, I mean, mixing the technology and the music that I played constantly and continually, outside of stuff that I heard on the radio, and the stuff that my parents played on the radio in the car was like you know standard AM pop music at that time, Rolling Stones, uh, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, and so on. Um, but the, you know. Uh, we also they took me to see Watt Stacks, which was oh. a big uh, yeah. So um, and then my parents got divorced, and my mother got remarried, and my stepfather had spent a lot of time in Central America, and was fluent in Spanish. So pretty much all Sundays we would listen to salsa music, uh, you know, conjunto music, uh, Tito uh, Puente, Ray Barbieri, you know, Ray Barreto. Sorry, and. Um, So I didn't start branching out until to have my own sort of musical interest until I was nine. And then I started buying R&B. I bought, um, the first record I bought was Psychedelic Shack by The Temptations. Um, And then then Ohio Players. um, I remember that, buying buying that. And... uh, I didn't start listening to, um, I don't think I started listening to rock, like straight up rock until I was about uh, 12. Right. 12 years old. Before then it was all R&B, early rock and roll. Elvis, Elvis was one of the, I I had five, sorry. I said four, (laughs) I had five. Elvis was uh, uh, um, 
one of the one of the the fifth forty five that I had. So, and then when I was twelve, I started listening to 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 rock and roll. And sadly, I think I have to say, actually, no, the first band that I started listening to was Led Zeppelin, and um, and then after that, I think it was Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, where they were popular. And can you remember much about going to your, I think it was one of the biggest festivals of all time, wasn't it? What's, what's that? Well, yeah, yeah, we didn't go to actually the festival because it was in Los Angeles, I believe, or, or the Midwest. I don't remember where exactly it was, but the, when the movie opened up, it was a big deal. They took, we right. went down, we went to the village to see the movie. And, you know, my parents used to take me to see, uh, I mean, whatever. They, they weren't getting a babysitter. So they would take me to, I remember seeing the Battle of Algiers, uh Costa, that Costa Gravas movie um I I never sang for my father with Melvin Douglas I mean shit you shouldn't really you know I've taken <laughs> taken a kid to but Watt Stacks was great it was fantastic so. yes I could imagine but then you obviously started to embrace sort of that mainstream rock sound you probably also had Pete Pete um Brampton comes live in that collection, didn't you? Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> it was very, it was very strange. Years later, to, uh, um, <laughs> I, I get. <laughs> well, he 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 would. I was when I was editor in chief of EQ magazine, uh, which was a recording magazine. We do these trade shows like NAM and AES, or uh, there was another one in Frankfurt, which I can't remember the name of now. Um, but for music instrument recording type folks and seeing him there at the same time was kind of always amusing to me because, uh, you know, all the girls in high school were in love with this guy. And then it was kind of funny watching him trying to, you know, as an older man, having much less success getting sexy with the ladies than I was. It was just a, an amusing turnaround for me. It's like, ah, that I'm getting you back from for suffering when I was 15, you know? Yes, I know. Yes, I, I, I actually won that record. I won that record on a radio station giveaway. I won that and uh, a, rec that a record by War. Uh, why can't we be friends? So excellent. That's yeah, uh, that's yeah. quite something. So were you were you so was it, were you on the East Coast then at this stage in your life? I grew up in. I'm born and raised in New York City. So so um, so were you becoming aware of that kind of the the emergence of that punk scene? You know, oh, the, for sure. For the, sure. The, the Stooges, and then you had the New York Dolls, and then you had you know CBGB. So was that scene yeah, or yeah. something that you became? Sort of like, oh look, they don't look like Pete Frampton at all. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I was I was there e immediately. Um, I think um, my stepfather was a journalist, and he had brought home a record to review. Uh, and this is 1977 because uh, I was kind of a depressive teen that he thought would be sort of funny for me to have by Eddie and the Hot Rods called Teenage Depression with a kid on the cover with a gun pointed to his head. But even in advance of that, um, you know, the Ramones were at CB's and, you know, you were hearing on the news about this thing called punk rock. And I'd started to go to high school in lower Manhattan over on 15th Street uh, in 1976. And I had friends who were like, we gotta go over to this place, we gotta go. And so I remember seeing the Ramones, uh, his brother's band, one of the guys that was his brother was in that band called the Rat Rattlers. Uh, David Windor from Monster Magnet, his first band was Shrapnel. Um, and then a lot of the no wave stuff, I found myself super attracted to, uh, you know, James Chance and, and so on. So I was going to CB's Max's Kansas City easily by 77. Yes. And the only, per only person I missed seeing that I had really wanted to see was uh, Patti Smith. 
but uh, but you know but a huge Johnny Thunders fan at that point and I, I keep in mind I mean a lot of this was not for me like there was no internet then right so the deal was um if you were hanging out on the lower east side or the east village you would see these people and then you would say oh who's that guy and they would say ah, that's Johnny Thunders. And then you would go f- find the music because there was no place to listen to the music before unless you were at the show or unless you picked up a, you know, you could, Soho Weekly News was a newspaper that sort of covered cool music. And then my stepfather ended up working for the Soho Weekly News. So I would find out about, I mean, a lot of it was just visual, right? You'd see somebody who looks like Johnny Thunder on the Lower East Side in 77. It's like, you got to follow that guy. I mean, I actually did follow him on the street to Club 57 to where he was doing a solo guitar thing. Like him and Walter lure so yeah. it was just it was just it was a great time and i was just th- saying the other day i really missed the new york dolls and then of course two days after i say that sylvain dies so you know yes that's true because i just i did an interview with this guy who did a, a book i don't know if you came across it with, um when midnight comes by gary green which because i realized actually all these people have been bringing out these kind of books from 40 years ago so there was this one that also came out oh uh, yeah yeah that one i know that was, yeah pat, pat blazeville i know actually yeah He's, yes and then and then there's kind of i mean they've all yes and the other guy who brought a book out i won't bore you with too many books but that was the other guy which kind of from oh yeah well I, i'm i'm gonna bore you i got i've got i got books here too i got uh, <laughs> rand no no i sorry i cleaned up i put them on the shelf uh, randy d did the hard, new york city hardcore book from like 70 or 80, 81, you know, so yeah. I, I said, this stuff is like our high school yearbook. So, cause I've been in a, but like American hardcore, Stephen Blush's book I'm in. And uh, so it is like our high school yearbooks, but then, yeah, the guy did that from the mud club did a book. Richard yes. Lloyd, Richard Lloyd did a, a great book. I think on Feral house. These are fantastic kind of chronicles. Yes, uh, this is true. I said, strange. I've been sort of interviewing. I even interviewed the guy from the mud club one as well, actually. Oh, he's I, great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did an article on him when the book came out. A couple of years so, ago. Um, and, well, the thing is I used to work for, he doesn't remember this, of course, but they would like, you know, they, they would take the bigger hardcore guys and say, tell you what, I'll let you in tonight for free. You just hang out at the door, be like, kind of watch the door for me for a couple hours. I was like, yeah, sure. Hang out for a couple hours and go on inside. So, yes. Um, yeah. So were you, because that was, because I interviewed the guy who was kind of the band, that uh, band called Pure, e- yes, Pure Evil, Pure something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That band. Yep. That was, yeah, so there was, there was quite a scene. But the thing, what you know, and this might be a simplistic view of it from watching documentaries and reading stuff, but did you get that sense not so much at the time because obviously that's happening but you know there was the birth of rap music disco and punk rock all happening in one city did you being a young person sort of absorbing all this and having that kind of very impressionable moment did you sort of have that sense of like my god it's all going on here this is the place to be uh, no you don't you, you never you never have that sense i mean it frames my thinking in a in a strange way like i remember thinking i used to say about the rest of america i remember actually saying this i go what, what's in the rest of america anyway i go outside of la 
and Chicago. It's just loser states. You could just, just loser <laughs> states. You could just blow them up. And who would give? Who gives a shit about Wisconsin? But that was before I had toured, you know, and then being in a band and you tour these places, and they were like wonderful, fantastic places out there, other than Los Angeles and Chicago, you know. But the, my sense at the time was, I mean, I also used to be a disco dance instructor, so I was like Friday night, I would go out to you know Studio Fifty Four, New York, New York, and uh, and then and Saturday night, I would go to, you know, Max's to see James Chance. And it was all, I mean, there, there was no kind of weird tribalism, like later, of course, emerged. Um, so you could comfortably do these things, um, you know, and you would see some of the same people at the hardcore shows or the punk. Keep in mind, 77, there was no hardcore. So it would be punk rock shows, new wave shows, disco shows. And then the hip hop stuff hadn't started to filter. I wasn't aware of hip hop stuff until actually I was aware of hip hop stuff that set that that same year. Um, and it's because I ended up working with a guy who had one of the first big hip hop hits. Uh, his his hip hop name was uh, uh, Jimmy Spicer. Um, and he did a song called Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all. And I knew him as Dollar Bill, but I guess he changed his name for whatever reason. And I remember uh, working with him for the summer and coming back. And he was from the Bronx. I was from Brooklyn. And telling my friends in Flatbush, oh, man, this is crazy thing. You know, you just, and we got a record and we got turntables in one of my friend's basements and we started doing this stuff. And it was kind of amusing. We didn't really think that we had any talent to go any further with it. So we didn't, but... I don't think I went into a hip to a hip hop show until the eighties. I mean, it was going on at the same time, but between punk rock and, and then when hardcore hit, I was completely enveloped, you know, yeah. disco. I stopped going to discos probably around 79, but uh, at that point hard, I'd already started going. I think I was saw black flag was the first hardcore band that I'd actually saw live. And then it, yeah. was, then it was all over for me. So I were know. you aware? Cause I did an in, quite a few interviews with people. There was these kind of British kids from Essex, England, they, they were sort of into rockabilly and they suddenly got signed up by a guy called Lee Childers, Black Childers, who took them to New York. You know, they got photographed by people like Robert Maplethorpe. They hung out with Andy Warhol. And they were into sort of, they were called the Rockettes and they were just these kind of rockabilly kids who just had these great tattoos, amazing hairstyles. And, um, you know, for about three, four years, they never really made much of an album, but they did sort of do quite a bit of touring and they were a bit on the scene at that time. So I remember them. Yes. I, 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 I love that style as well. There's a guy through, um, years later, of course, uh, his band, he was called, he was in a band called Buzz and the Flyers. And he was one of the first, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of, whole, whole hell of a lot of black folks on the scene. But I remember walking across right by Trash and Vaudeville, which apparently is where he worked, where you could get all your cool punk rock clothes down on St. Mark Street. I remember walking across the street, like, I don't know where I was going. I, don't know, I was going, maybe going to Ray's Pizza. And I, you know, just being in my head focused, and I looked up, and it was like one of those like Dante, you know, be a teacher moments where you just look at somebody, and Buzz was there, and he had this perfect pompadour and this like electric blue suit and these creepers, and I go, I, I would hope to eat for a small fraction of my life, be able to live it with the same style. This guy seems to have 24 hours a day, right? So, uh, so he was in Buzz and the Flyers. I'd, and that was a big rockabilly scene in New York at the time, right? The Stray Cats, who became huge, of course, at Buzz and the Flyers. And I, I was into that as well. And Buzz, of course, at a certain point left, uh, went to London, and started that band, uh, the Joe Boxers. 
and then they and they had one huge hit or two huge hits uh, just got lucky and then um he came back and now he's in la uh as a, he's uh, a fairly significant acting teacher in la but fa through the miracle of facebook i was like oh shit this is buzz buzz is here and so i wrote him and i told him about this moment crossing uh crossing saint mark's you know and it was just like how it actually was sort of emblematic about how i've chosen to live my life post facto i mean this is the great thing about sort of social media is that there's no way i could have actually have told him this uh, but i could tell him then he was like well Thank you, man. I'll come to see Oxbow play next time you're in LA. So yes, well, it's funny because just before, just around Christmas, I did an interview uh, with a member of the uh, Joe Boxers, and uh, yes, I got the sort of lowdown about how they sort of developed that style, and you know, and they had that great single. But he said, you know, we just had dreadful material to follow it up with, and you know, yeah. we just. But they they were gonna, you know, have one a one off show last year, so it was, it was funny. But there was just that one single, and he said we just never had the material. But he kept in, you know, the music industry, and and uh, has kind of made it his life. This guy, yeah, I don't know yeah. But yes, the Joe Boxers, they were very. Yeah, yeah. But no, yes, well, well, Buzz changed his name to Dig, so that's why it's hard to find him. So he's now Dig Wayne and not Buzz Wayne. Yes. That's quite sweet, isn't it? Because I've got that sort of, as we go into the 80s, you know, you had that punk period, and then you had that post-punk period with people like Magazine and Wire and Public Image Limited. And then there was a little bit of a grey area. And then indie pop in the UK, we had this thing called indie pop, I suppose. And it was bands like the Smiths from the UK, Manchester. And then you had the go-betweens and the other little indie bands like the um, June Brides, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No. So there's all these. So that hardcore scene that you mentioned, that doesn't really sort of happen in the UK until a little bit later. But then there was bands like Huskadoo came along, who sort of was was amazing. And then Big Black and then the Butthole Surfers. And they, and they were the kind of the, the... And then, you know, you said um, there was Bad Religion and Bad Brains as well, wasn't there? So there was that kind of the rise of that kind of what we call, I don't know, hardcore, I suppose, isn't it? Well, you've said a lot there, and and, and um, to not s split hairs, but that uh, the, you said a lot of different things in there, right? Because <laughs> um, by the time I remember, I just disregarded all those like the, those bands that you mentioned, the Smiths, the Go Betweens. I, I just didn't pay attention to them in eighty two, eighty three. Not, my ear was not not open, not ready or willing. I'd already, you know, I listened to the Cure, to the, the 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 Joy Division, and that kind, and that and magazine I stuck with, which was great. Years later, to be working with uh, Barry Adamson was really fantastic for me. You know, yeah. he invited me to do the um, the London Jazz Festival at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, me and uh, Nick Cave, and um, and that was. That was like uh, like the apotheosis, a really major life, amazing life dream. So, um, but yeah, so I, I, I stuck uh, on the British side, I stuck with it, right? And that's how, so through magazine, that two-step from Joy Division to magazine. And then of course I picked up on the birthday party because I was still, even at the same time as listening to hardcore, I was still paying attention to what was going on, but I wasn't really, um, like the pop stuff that was happening here in America, the corollary to what you're talking about. I just like REM early on, you know, I just, uh, I didn't have time for them. Uh, and Husker do once they started to change, 
we played with them a couple of times and I just was not interested. I had to come back to them. I had a roommate, the, actually the guy who recorded the first two Oxbow records, who through repeated plays, the Smiths in the house finally got me to pay it. That's like, okay, okay, okay. Who is that? Who is that? What band is that? So, so I kind of came back, but Bad Religion was around from the beginning. I mean, they were a bona fide hardcore band and then became something else. Um, and then kind of went back to it. Um, um, but they were very different from the bad brands who were the, who were 76, 77, right there at the beginning. So Yes. So when did you start to sort of go from being a, a kind of a punter and a fan to sort of thinking, actually, I want to take it to the, I want to be on the stage. I want to sort of be part of this kind of movement and, and sort of become a player. Well, I'd been on stage since I was two. Um, I won some New York City award thing, uh, for, you know, for as a two-year-old for, you know, being, the, the, I guess, the most uh, uh, attractive baby in New York City in, 19, <laughs> in 1964. And, uh, and then, you know, school plays and musical theater and all that stuff. And then, and then going on auditions and modeling and stuff when I was in, uh, in high school. Um, but I had friends in bands in high school um, and punk bands in New York City. And one was called Urban Blight, um, which actually existed for maybe two decades after from, from 77 on. Um, Necron 99 and uh, and I had a, one of my best friends had a polka band so I kind of was watching them buying vans going on tour coming back from the weekend divvying up money dealing with other members rehearsal space but I never thought about it as something for me until 1980 and then I was I played sax in a band called Al and the X's which was uh, <laughs> it'll start with the fact that I couldn't really play the sax, <laughs> yeah. and that was the first band before Whipping Boy, you know. So, so 1980 is when, um, and I, I was still doing theater. I was still doing theater in 1980. I did um, Emperor Jones, you know, uh, did that play and did like some David Rabe, you know, some small black box theater kind of. Uh, uh, actual plays and then I just stopped I just quit I was sick of it I didn't, I didn't enjoy acting as much as I did music so by 81 I was doing music all the time and then yes. I didn't go back to acting until until the mid to late 80s when I did the uh, Bill Cosby's uh, the worst movie of 1987 Bill Cosby's Leonard part six and that was my return to acting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, God, there was that whole, yeah, the 80s, that whole period, actually. So when did, when did Oxbow sort of become a kind of an entity? When did you sort of, you know, pull it together? Well, it, it was, uh, it, it's, weird things started to happen in, in the late 80s, right? So I, I got all this money from the Bill Cosby movie. And... Um, and uh, I, I, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, you're used to demarcating your life in, in like four year segments, right? Four years of high school, four years yeah. of college. And I, I kind of had some terrible, like uh, somebody at NME described it as in reviewing Oxbow's first record as an unspecified disaster. Well, the, the unspecified disaster was, you know, a really, really terrible relationship that had me thinking that, you know what, I don't need to be alive. I don't need to, you know, this, this 
fucking world. I'm going to kill myself. And uh, but I decided that it, it was too prosaic to 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 leave a suicide letter. So I was going to make a record. And uh, I lived in the house, like I said, with the guy who recorded. He had a studio up in his room. I lived in the garage. He lived upstairs. And we said, Let, let's record a record. So I started. I laid down some basic beats and then started playing bass for it. But it was going to be painstaking, painstaking to construct it that way. So I was like, ah, let me let me see if I can pull Nico in. But I don't want it to be a band where like everybody's got an equal say, because yeah. that, that wasn't working for me in Whipping Boy toward the end, very specifically in Whipping Boy toward the end. It was it was it was a lot of effort. I, I understood exactly what I wanted Oxbow to sound like. And I wrote it down, I wrote the lyrics out, and I said, if I bring Nico in, you know, to help with this, then I don't have to deal with, he's he's helping me. Uh, it's not, not like I'm relying on him to come up with an idea so we don't have to be at contra loggerheads over, over this stuff. So he, he read my notes, read the lyrics, and he said, cool, what about this? And he would come over to the garage and we would mess around and because he could actually play instruments, we actually recorded stuff. And then I got my suicide note in the form of the record Fuckfest, you know, um, and... Uh, just pausing, you know, with the, the review, did you say it was a review in the NME for the for your the film? I, but, no, I, no, it was it was a review for one of the Oxbow records, but they they were they made, it was a kind of just a tangential reference. They said, you know, so, they, they talk about Oxbow records seem to kick off at the foot of an unspecified disaster, and I was like, yeah, good for you to figure that out, <laughs> you know, because that's very precisely what it was. Um, yes. But, that's quite that's quite an extreme response though wasn't it to um to think that's it i'm going to kill myself well yeah i'd flirt with it for years <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and a friend of mine finally put it in perspective because you think about kill yourself i was like yeah i mean up to and including sitting there with the shotgun in my mouth it's like you know i was went through a lot of stressors man and uh, and he did this imitation of me he goes kill myself i'm too handsome to kill myself you kill yourself <laughs> and, then I, and then i started to think you know he's got he's kind of got something that's there's something to that where it's like there are people who i would rather see dead more than i want to see me dead so you know but that's not what happened what happened is we put out fuck fest and um and somebody in the uk uh thought it was an interesting record <laughs> and they said will you come and play in london and we said sure and suddenly there emerged from the mist a reason to be alive because i said well i should at least see london before i die yeah and, and of course went to london and the show was great and we did two shows and uh, the reviews were great and i was like all right Okay, maybe you know. Yeah, it's right. I'm too handsome to kill myself. Maybe I won't kill myself. So you know. Yeah, you know. God, that was a very angsty. And were you now? Had you managed to? Because I haven't spoke to quite a lot of people from that scene in New York, the eighty, well, the seventies and the eighties. It was a kind of a difficult one to navigate. Just avoiding hardcore drugs. Were you? Had you become sort of wise enough to do that, or was that kind of all part of the scene that you felt? You know, it was impossible to move. No, you no. Know, the the thing is, the thing is, uh, once you get mobile in New York City, strange things start to happen. So I was a pretty straight ahead, thirteen year old. But as soon as you get on the subway, you know, which I had to do to get to New York City to to my high school, you know, different things, different people. So I think I started smoking weed when I was fourteen. Smoked it religiously three times a day, every day for six months. 
And then I stopped <laughs> and never and never did again. And the, one of the things that's kind of hung over my entire life from the time when I was nine years old and started buying music is I started lifting weights. And I don't, I don't, I'd been a competitive bodybuilder um, through when I was in high school and uh, like teenage, Mr. Teenage New York Gym Association, Mr. Bensonhurst, Mr. Bay Ridge, Mr. Bath Beach, you know, competing in all these shows. So I was like, take when other people were out there taking heroin and stuff like that, I was like going up to the Bronx to this like weird bodybuilding shop and buying pituitary gland extract and <laughs> all this stuff to try to to try to 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 gain muscle mass. So I was not, I think I stopped drinking when I was 17 and I stopped smoking weed after that, that six month period. So I was there, but I was kind of a health fanatic at that point. And um so I didn't I didn't have any serious involvement with drugs until this period that we're talking about with the first Oxbow record. And that came at the cusp on the cusp of about three solid years of, of taking hallucinogens, you know, uh, hallucinogenics, which, you know, I now realize was greatly therapeutic and not likely to make me worse, but indeed as it had made me, made me better. Um, so. Yes. And, and it, it did not interfere with my weightlifting at all, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's quite a mix. You really mixed it. I mean, I suppose I, I did speak, I think it was Anne, is it Magnuson, who was kind of part of that scene in the sort of New York in the 80s. And I think she said she just didn't touch drugs at all, even though everyone around her was. So Well, see, but also the, the weird thing is it's, it's an association thing. So people knew, I mean, you couldn't avoid noticing that I was muscled, right? So people knew... I mean, you know, people would sneak off and do, but it, it was like, I was like the super ego thing, right? People would sneak off and do stuff and they would not share it with me because they, I was like dad, you know, <laughs> they were not, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm speaking mostly in the hardcore scene, you know? Um, so I never got high, even though I was taking say, you know, LSD, I was never, pe people never offered me anything. We never, I got offered more drugs when I was in, in my disco phase. So, you know, when I was going to discos, so, you know, 15 years old, you're snorting Coke in the, in the coat room. Uh, but you know, I mean, I didn't have the wherewithal to, to purchase cocaine. So it was only when I was going to, to, to discos that I was getting it. And I was never, I don't have an addictive personality. I've got an obsessive kind of personality. So, um, yeah, it just it, it is not something that I continue to do. Oh. Yes. Oh. So after after um, Fuckfest, then you, yes, because that was kind of an interesting period, isn't it? Because 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 going back to my great narrative on indie pop, I put it down to the years of eighty three to eighty seven. This is in the UK. That's the years of the Smiths, and then after that, ecstasy comes along, and there's kind of a whole dance scene with you know people like the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses and Prime yes. Everybody's really wanting that, and you realise that every sixteen to eighteen year old that comes along that like period, they want their sound. They don't really want to hear that what you know the previous. Yep lot had and you know because I remember now looking back at the early 70s I mean I thought now I realize the Beatles had just finished but the Beatles to me by then just seemed like just old you know they yep. were passe you know and that yep. was just 72 73 you think yep. they'd only just broken up and already we'd moved on to 
you know, Alice Cooper and Slade yeah. and Sweet, Sweet and all that kind of band. So it was kind of a strange yeah. one. So they, there is that kind of, okay, who's next, please? You know, and then you, then we had sort of, obviously, the, the Seattle scene, because we had a DJ called John Peel in this country, and yeah. he was kind of a great gatekeeper, I suppose. He played a lot of He, he invited us on his show. Did he? Yeah, we said, we can't do it now. We don't have enough time, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back later. And then he died, so. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, one, one of my regrets. Another one was playing with Minor, minor Threat at the Olympic Auditorium in LA, uh, my guitar player at the time. Uh, this is the Whipping Boy, my hardcore band. Said, oh, I'm getting married in a month and my, my wife-to-be doesn't want me to go. I go, we'll fly you in and fly you back. He goes, I can't do it. There'll be other shows. And then of course, Minor Threat. We, we'd already played with Minor Threat a bunch, but this would have been in front of 5,000 people at the Olympic in LA. And uh, of course, they broke up right after that show. So, <laughs> awesome. Never happened. so, but then, and then I remember him playing this, you know, Sub Pop 100 compilation, you know, Nirvana, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I went to see the Throne Muses and the Pixies, and and suddenly grunge comes along. And this is around the time that you you have your moment, and then the follow-up album, King of the Jews, comes out as well. So were you thinking, right, we're kind of on the zeitgeist with our with our sound here? Well, the funny thing is, there's all these like weird connections. Like recently, somebody who, who's a big Nirvana fan, Kurt Cobain fan, they got the, there's a book out with Kurt Cobain's diaries or some such thing, and apparently he he had played Nirvana had played with Whipping Boy, my hardcore band. I don't remember this, um, and so I'm thinking as people tried, they they sent me the page from his diary, and I'm looking at it, and I'm trying to remember, and then I remember he before they were Nirvana, they had another name. And I kind of have a vague memory, memory of that. Um, and, uh, and so we, those, go, those bands were, I, I mean, the first time we played Seattle, uh, Kim Thiel and uh, Chris Cornell came to us and said, hey man, we want to see you guys play, but we can't get in because we're too young. And I said, I'll tell you what, we'll make you our roadies if you load our gear in. So uh, they said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so they loaded our gear in and then we got to the show. So I always thought about when they got on the SST, which later Oxbow ended up on SST, I just ended up thinking about them as kids, you know? So I didn't know any, anything about the zeitgeist, you know? It was like, it was like, oh, you know, these kids, and they were they were on SST and they, they were doing, it was like the next generation cool stuff. And then it became uh grunge and then because i've always worked at music magazines myself as a journalist and then i started getting like mainstream record label uh promos with pearl jam and stuff i go whoa, whoa, something, whoa something and then of course you know i wasn't the, the issue with me is i wasn't tuned into tv and you can't underestimate the fact that nirvana would existed for many years pre-tv it was they were made solely from music videos. I mean, without music videos, you don't have people in Nebraska giving a shit about them, right? So um, music television, music videos, so the wherewithal to be able to make them really change things. I mean, um, but then you have bands like the Butthole Surfers. When we uh, played Austin for the first time, we stayed with them and Gibby gave, gave me a tape. And oh, this is our new record. It was a brown reason to live. And then we listened to it in the van on the way over. And after he got out of the van, I told my guitar player, I was like, ah, oh, man, this, this is a great record. But with a name like that, those guys will never make it. <laughs> 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 so, which, you know, which, you know, I mean, it's crazy. If you, if you 
And again, it was me with thinking with a record label head or like a, a media head. But of course, it, it, it's totally what worked in their in, in their favor. So I wasn't aware of it being it, that we were part. I mean, Oxbow through from Fuckfest to King of the Jews, keep in mind, was still me dealing with some emotional issues. And I never expected, I mean, again, I expected it to be a lasting testament, but I never expected it to, to garner any kind of interest when, you know, uh, Kevin Martin uh, from you know, that band God history said, I'm starting a record label. Could you come over? Do you want to be on our label? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I I just thought it was kind of a weird oddity. And, uh, and I, 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 I mean, if, if you want to look at King of the Jews, it was really like Fuckfest part two, but there was a point at which now we're getting into let me be a woman where I had to decide this seems to be gaining some purchase. I'm clearly not going to kill myself now. Should we, what do we do now? And that was, that was, I can't remember the exact year or maybe now we're in 91 and it was okay because we had the two Oxbow records as a template. So I wasn't, I didn't ever see what we're doing as part of any, I would read the reviews and I would see them struggle to kind of compare us to the Butthole Surfers or Jesus Lizard, or occasionally there was some mention of maybe, you know, I don't know, neurosis, but I just, I didn't hear any of that in our music because it was so deeply ensconced in this kind of trauma that I, you know, this, I mean, I, trauma is a strong word to use now because I'm 58, I can go, oh, I was being a silly, you know, 20 something year old, but it, at the time it was enough for me to be sitting around in my trailer with a shotgun in my mouth. So it was significant for me. Um, so we just kept doing like Chuck Berry said, a friend of mine went to play with Chuck Berry once and he says to Chuck Berry at the beginning of the set, he goes, what are we playing? And Chuck Berry just kind of looks at him and goes, Chuck Berry songs. Like, <laughs> That's it. That's it. You don't get a set list. They're just Chuck Berry songs. No to set list. So at that point we were just doing Oxbow songs. We didn't really, I mean, we played with weird bands. We played with Tom Waits's band, you know, Orange Symphonette, but, but we also played with King Diamond. We were playing with wildly different bands and types of music. Um, it just seemed to be like Oxbow was Oxbow. You know? Yes, absolutely. So as we, as, so by the third album, were you still feeling, you know, trauma in the trauma or no, I, I, it was a different thing. What was starting to happen? The third record, uh, by the third record, you realize, of course, uh, Steve Albini had had found us, right? And he had sent me a postcard, and uh, and I wasn't sure whether he was mocking me or what, you know. So I, I said, well, let me give this guy a call, and I was very tentative. And then I find out later because um, he wrote, we put out this book, special edition for the for a Thin Black Duke called The Thin Black Book. And so he wrote about how he discovered Oxbow and he was in a record store and he saw Fuckfest and he goes with a great cover. And he said, what is this? And the guy in the record store said, oh, it's the guy from Whipping Boy. And he was like, I don't want any more hardcore. He just threw it back in the, in the bin. Uh, but then he happened to hear it on the radio and he, he waited till, for them to announce who it was. And then he was really, oh, wow, that's the Oxbow. So he went back to the record store, bought the record, and then bought King of the Jews. And he said, I need to talk to these guys. And so then I just said, well, great. Thanks for the postcard. That's really cool. Uh, would you record us? He was like, yes. I mean, I guess that's why he sent the letter. So he did, he did, uh, well, we did Let Me Be a Woman with him. And then we did the uh, Serenade in Red. So. 
Yes, and this was and and you had quite a lineup on this this album, didn't you? Because you also were working with um, Kathy Acker as well, who was quite a sort of quite an extreme personality and writer. So, how did you sort of how did your paths meet? Well, uh, there is a the West Coast bureau chief of uh, Spin Magazine, who was good, actually uh, Dean Kuypers, who was good friends with David Bowie as well. Um, and said, you got to meet my friend Kathy Acker and introduced us to Kathy Acker because he was a big Oxbow fan. And um, and so we met Kathy Acker and said, hey, do you want to, you know, we could do, she goes, yeah, why don't I, I repurpose Pussy King of the Pirates for um, for uh, Let Me Be a Woman, which seemed to be really pretty perfect. So that's what we, that's what we did. And then, of course, then she died. So, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah, there seems to be an awful, awful constancy. The only Marianne Faithful who worked with us on Serenade in Red, she did not die. <laughs> <She's> still- <laughs> <laughs> yes, but by by the sort of as, as we trucked through the nineties, you were sort of you you must have been feeling quite really pleased with some of the reviews because you know the famous kind of well, I wouldn't say famous Simon Reynolds, who you know I do have quite a lot of his books. I mean, he he absolutely loved the band, didn't he? He really got what you were about. Yeah, he did. And uh, actually, Simon is single-handedly responsible for um, for improving on the Oxbow product. And I'll tell you why. That first show that we played at the Union Tavern, um, which Kevin had put together that we flew over to do right after Fuckfest had come out in the UK, he talked about some of my stage affectations that were a holdover from Whipping Boy, right? Keep in mind, Oxbow's first show was actually Whipping Boy's last show. Um, and I hadn't really figured out how it was that Oxbow, how, I mean, I could, I made, Oxbow made total sense behind a microphone in the studio to me, but I hadn't really figured out how to make sense of Oxbow on stage separate from what I had already been doing with Whipping Boy. So the show that he saw in London was uh, was fundamentally a Whipping Boy show, and he talked about so he he talked about elements of the show uh, that were kind of fishbone esque, and and I, I don't know that he used that word, but there's a, a phrase that he used that stuck with me, and it was ham theatricality, and he was like, you know, these guys doing really great stuff. He found that the ham theatricality distancing, and I realized that that these were defensive mechanisms that I had developed from years of playing uh, hardcore, where I was trying to play different hardcore in front of hardcore audiences that were not 100% receptive, so that you do this other thing. And then I, so after that, after reading that, I I went back and said, how do I, how do I get Oxbow to be wholly and fully me? And, and and I just thought, I I, I got to insist on it. I, I gotta. I I can't. I can't. It's like there's got to be a, a firm line in the sand. If you don't like it, you can leave. But this is what it is. Um, in other words, the show that you do is a show that you do. It it, it it's not. Uh, you got to resist the temptation of standing behind a microphone and pleasing the people on the other side of the microphone. Just get rid of that. And I did. I wish I could remember my first show after that. But I think it was, 
it was a, a mad affair <laughs> because what, what they were dealing with was essentially at that point, probably 10 years of, you know, of, of, you know, of me trying to seek an equilibrium between one, this side of the mic and that side of the mic. And that show where I realized I can't ever do that again was like, there's no other side of the mic. There's just this side of the mic. And at that point it was like an explosion and Oxbow became kind of from a stage perspective, what it is now. Yes, absolutely. And how we, and how were you sort of navigating? Because most bands, you know, have, have a sort of a five year narrative, you know, you know, they get together, have that honeymoon period. Then, you know, in this country, you know, we, they get picked up by the John Peel show or the NME. Then they have that first album, things going well. Second album, not so good. All tricky. And, you know, it's like, you know, there's certain things that start to happen. And then, you know, if, and in the UK, if any bands ever come to America, they always sort of come back and break up. So, but you were sort of, obviously longevity was kind of happening with the band at the moment, you know, keeping it together which is I hadn't appreciated as a fan how difficult that is because mostly you know there's the complete lack of money personality problems not the greatest management people hadn't sat down to begin with and said should we just have a proper conversation about everything here it just never happens does it until it's a little bit too like there's too much to deal with well kind of how Oxbow started was was super helpful uh, and the idea at that point was it, it, we're gonna we we stopped thinking about we we no longer had careerist notions about what we we're doing. I think we really started to appreciate that what we we're doing was being musical artists, right? So whether or not somebody buys a Picasso painting or not, Picasso's got to paint that painting, right? So you know this idea of well, you know I remember Turbo Negro got a big a deal with Levi's, <laughs> $250,000 from Levi's. Maybe we'll get a $250,000 deal with Levi's. And I did actually contact Levi's and say, hey, what about us? And the guy who got uh, Turbo Negro that deal said, oh, man, I wish you contacted me sooner. This is my last day here. So, but that, that beat as it may, we stopped thinking about we stopped thinking about the business ramifications for what we're doing. Again, from the very beginning, nobody made their living off of Oxbow. So, you know, we figured some people like golf, some people like, you know, tennis, whatever, what they want to do with your spare time. This is what we chose to do. And um, so we didn't have, there were no careers notions. So it wasn't like the, the gauge would never be, um, man, our record's going nowhere. Uh, well, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, we didn't have a label for Let Me Be A Woman until a label came around. And I remember Albini saying, you know, records that are orphans, orphans often stay orphans. And so, yeah, we ended up finding a label for that. But it was just, I mean, for me personally, I was pursuing a storyline that if now I can see, and now that we're recording Love's Holiday, which is the, the next and newest Oxbow record, I can see from Fuckfest to Thin Black Duke is a whole story cycle. And as it takes up about 25 years of my life, it makes complete sense. If I were the kind of person to leave a diary, you could take that diary from Fuckfest and go to Thin Black Duke and go, oh, you could reconstruct 25 years of my life at this point over half of my, half of my life. So, um, I, I, I think that, uh, uh, and at a certain point, the music has changed enough that you realize, one, you're not going to find musicians that can play as well as the guys that you're playing with. Two, 
they completely understand like the Chuck Berry thing. They completely understand the Oxbow songs, right? It's not, I don't, you don't have to. And then thirdly, we kind of got to a point where we've fully embraced the idea that this is Oxbow. And if anybody were to leave, that's the end of Oxbow. It's like, right. we meet at a factory, we produce something in this factory, we leave the factory. And when we stop coming to that factory, that thing that was produced in that factory will no longer exist. Um, but, uh, it's still pleasing to us. And, uh, and I can't imagine it being more pleasing with other people. So it's, it's really sort of a, a healthy marriage. And I'm not saying that you've got difficult, very strong personalities. I remember being at the gym, uh, maybe six months before thin black Duke had come out and threatening to quit. (laughs) I said, if, if this hasn't changed, by the time I get home from this gym, understand that I will no longer be an oxbow. <laughs> so I don't like to do stuff like that, but I was, re- you know, I mean, we were all just, I mean, poured everything into Thin Black Duke and it we were starting to fray around the edges. But, uh, you know, none of us have had drug problems. Only a few of us have been divorced and then you know, subsequently remarried. So we've been pretty stable personalities as a unit. Yes, absolutely. You're a constant. So then, because there was one other artist that I've met who, when they started playing music and making music, she sort of thought, well, this is brilliant. And she's managed to do it all her life, but she realized it was never going to make any money. So she kept a career. So she's a lecturer by day, five days a week, and then does music in the evenings and the weekends and has been incredibly successful. So did you, uh, Amelia Fletcher, Okay. I, I she, was a, she was a woman who was in lots of these kind of, they, they, there's a sort of a label called Sarah Records, which is a little bit sort of, um, I suppose, quite acoustic-y. And people sort of were a bit dismissive at the time. Now everyone loves Sarah Records. But she's, um, yeah, Amelia Fletcher. And so she's been in lots of bands and they're still making music. And she's always had that very definite, you know, that's this is great, but I can't see how I'm going to be able to make, a, be able to feed myself doing it. So. Well, you- well, you know, the funny thing that you said before was that, you know, you talk about British bands, British bands will come to America, then they'll come back and they'll break up. America will destroy you. It was the fact that we weren't relying on America to, to survive and we were taken seriously in, in, in the UK. We were taken seriously, uh, you know, on the continent in Europe. So it, it uh, if it had been the other way, I don't, I mean, America is just so big and the, you know, the drugs are too good, the food is too good, or at least plentiful. It's just too, too many distractions. And then, you know, you show up and still, I mean, we can play in America now just because it serves as such a comical counterpoint to, to, to when we play in Europe, you know, like, in fact, there was a guy who had seen us play at uh, La Villette Sonique in Paris, right? So we play 6,000 people. And this guy says, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'd like to hang out. I go, fine, call us when you get there. So he comes to see us play, he sees it play at Villette Sonique, 6,000 people. And then a month later, he comes to see us at this leather bar uh, <laughs> in San Francisco. And, uh, and there are like 40 people there. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he comes up and he just, he just doesn't understand. And I just look at him and I can see what he's dealing with. And I go, it's America, man. America, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know how to explain it to you. So we had the counterpoint of, of cool things happening in some other place, and then we come home, and then we expect it, you know, like in LA, we played some show with Steve Shelley from uh, 
Sonic Youth is, and you know, the promoter is running out the back with the money, trying not, it's just like America, you know? <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, it was, you know, like Jimi Hendrix came to the UK and, you know, formed the Hendrix experience with the guy from The Animals, Chaz Chandler, but he wasn't able to get it in together in America. And then, then obviously goes back to America and sort of says, all right, I'm Jimi Hendrix. And I mean, sort of funny enough with, Kurt Cobain, I mean, when they came over, you know, with that sub pop album, Bleach, <clears throat> you know, the UK got it straight away. I mean, you can do the UK in sort of two weeks, four weeks, can't you? you can go, right, I've done the whole lot. They all know me. The kids love me, you know, and that's, that's it. You've, you know, you've ticked that and you've gone to that next level. And I guess Europe's a little bit the same. But I think when a British band goes to America, they just come back kind of like completely like, hello. Yeah. Can you see yeah. me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's what is it? Bukowski always talked about. He said New York was the coolest city on the world, on the planet. You know, just because when you go there, just like you just that the twelve million of you here. What do I? I don't give a shit about you. And I don't feel that way. I, I have great feelings of affection for New York City, but I understood what he was saying. I mean, Whipping Boy people still think of me as a California hardcore guy, but I, I remember coming back with Whipping Boy and seeing people who had ignored me at shows, you who were like kissing up to me because I was like the California hardcore guy. And I was like, yeah, man, I remember you from, and I started naming shows. And, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it didn't dawn on them. I, I have the same accent you do. Can't you hear it? I'm a New Yorker. I just went to California, formed this band and went back and then got this respect that I never would have gotten if I had stayed, you know? Yeah, this is very tricky. So then were you able to sort of have a day job and sort of do all your other projects to sort of, I suppose, not rely on the music to sort of pay always. your rent? Always, always, always. I mean, uh, you know, I studied uh, media communications and journalism, right? So um, I got my first job. Uh, I graduated from college in 84, 85, and my first job in 87. I mean, I was already in Whipping Boy then. And, uh, um, um, but you know, the funny thing is, <laughs> I could keep, I could do this kind of Clark Kent, this double life, because the internet hadn't existed. You know, <laughs> I remember interviewing for some job at uh, at Syntex, which has got uh, absorbed by uh, Siba Geigy, this big Swiss pharma company, and it was for editor in chief of of their corporate publication or some such thing. And I aced the interview, and I'm leaving the building. You know, I'm there in a suit, and I got a briefcase. And as I leave the building, I hear the words that you'd never ever want to hear. And the guys say whoa what are you doing here and i'm like god damn it and the woman says oh you two know each other know each other you should see this guy on stage and i was like eh, eh. she's like <laughs> you in a band i was like well in college i used to be in the band and i didn't get the job you know there was some fucking lunatic but now with the internet it's getting harder to get jobs i almost didn't get the job at eq magazine and it was a music magazine because they had looked online uh, after they had given me, given me the job, but before it started, they had looked online and seen um, clips from the, the, that first documentary they made about Oxbow, Music for Adults, where I'm choking, the, when I'm in Bradford, choking the guy on the stage. And they're like, we can, we, I'm getting to hire this guy. So it's like, oh man, the internet has made it very difficult. Fortunately, I have a job now where they know about all that stuff and, uh, and I've been there eight years and they don't like it, but you know, it's, 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And so you've just, you know, the the previous album that came out was 2017, you said. Um, So so have you got a a new album that's coming out either this year or next year? uh, Well, for us, we're, we're only putting out music that we can tour on. So, um, so we just did in July, uh, pulled into the studio and I sang 18 songs. So for Oxbow, that's, you know, our records usually have seven or eight songs, 18 songs is, uh, um, and we did Narcotic Story, um, um, Thin Black Duke, and this new one, it's called Love's Holiday with Joe Ciccarelli. And so the vocals are all done and now we're doing guitar overdubs and then we have, kind of sign a, a lot of symphonic stuff that has to happen in choir. And so trying to figure out how to do a socially distanced choir to find a room that's big enough for people to stand in different portions of it without masks, you know, we're, we're dealing with that now, but the record will come out when we can tour on it. So even if we were to finish it in the next month, which is not going to happen, we wouldn't be releasing it until 2022. Yes, absolutely. And is this your label that you, you're on now? Uh, we have we have no label as uh, you actually called it a really interesting time. Hydrahead, um, who had died, and the record label Hydrahead had died, and then they came back and re- released it. We got to, you know, we've heard uh, Thin Black Duke. We got to release it, so they came back to release Thin Black Duke, and now they've said again, ah, we're done with having a record label. So we are now in the process of of trying to find a label. Um, but because we're not going to be playing for two years we and the record's not finished yet, we have plenty of time to poke around to try to find somebody who, you know, um, who understands Oxbow. Yes, absolutely. Because I did have, I have to say, I did hear your, your interview you did with um, Lydia Lunch, which was mm-hmm. quite fascinating. So then, you know, on obviously... The, on, the, on the Lydian spin. On the Lydian spin, yes. So that was quite an engaging one. Obviously, it must be quite interesting being survivors of, of the kind of music entertainment world. Well, I mean, you know, the thing is you can make music or not make music. <laughs> it seems like if you're going to make music, you do so because it gives you some sort of pleasure. So it gives us a requisite level of pleasure. Um, and it's extra nice that people seem to enjoy it as well. And more significantly for me, that people seem to, to, to get it. Like, um, my God, I got, I got a, a text or direct mail via Twitter from somebody from the UK a couple of days ago. And I mean, we get these on an odd occasion, but fundamentally he said that Oxbow had saved his life. Um, and, um, and that's happened over the course of time. Like I'm sitting in, in my house now and get this really nice fence out front. People always say, man, this is a nice fence. And I said, well, let me tell you the story of the fence, you know, and, um, I was looking for some lumber. I said, man, I need to do a fence. People are on my lawn. Like, I can't have it. So, um, I put it up on Facebook and some woman who works at this company called Precor, which they did, they built the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, a huge company. She said, uh, you know, I'll give you all the lumber you need. And I said, well, really? I was looking for this, the kind of lumber I wanted was expensive lumber, but I wanted it cheaply. And she says, no, I'll give it to you for free uh, because I don't know if you know this, but you saved my life. And I was like, you know, that's funny because I don't remember helping anybody by way of saving any lives. And she goes, well, I was suicidal. And uh, a friend of mine to try to jog me out of suicide, let's say for your birthday, let's let's have a let's do something special let's 
you know, he's trying to cheer up. Let's 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 have a band play. And then she goes, no band's going to play. He goes, well, let's, well, I know the guys in Whipping Boy. Let's ask Whipping Boy. And so he asked us to play her part, birthday party at her house, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. And we said, yeah, sure. You pay us. Yeah, give us a couple hundred dollars. We'll come and play. And we went and played this house party. And she goes, it completely changed the course of her entire life. And it was, she could pay us back by just giving me the lumber. That would be cool. <laughs> you know, so that's what happened. It, weird stuff happens and kind of justifies it jeezy crazy that's amazing and when you and and do you look back at your younger self and and find it quite amazing that you've managed to survive and that you've sort of got yourself in the position you are now um yes well yes and no um a friend of mine who's a lifelong Californian had come to visit me in New York at one point. And I said, well, how do you like New York? You know, I really wanted him to like New York. And he goes, ah, it's, it's an exciting place. There's lots happening here, but everybody here. And he didn't, he didn't, couldn't find the word that he was looking for, but eventually I, I've come to conclude that what he was like, the word that he was using, the word that he was thinking was hustle. Everybody's got the hustle going. And, um, I've always had that in 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 my blood, and if I, I, I of course, you never, your insight is maybe not that great with yourself. So I've always had that, and um, like I remember, you know, it snowed a lot outside, and uh, most kids were like, "Oh, great, let's go." Oh, sorry, most most people were like, "Let's go, let's go, let's go play in the snow," and I was like, "No, no, no, you got a shovel? Let me borrow your shovel." and watch and we, we go up and down the street and say, $10, I'll shovel all this stuff for you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I always had, always had some kind of scheme or scam or some trying to play an angle. Always. I wanted to, you know, I mean, I saw everybody in my family working and I really, I remember my great grandmother, I'm saying like, I get older, you know, I'm going to do it so you don't have to work. I'm going to make it so you don't have to. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of to a certain degree shocked and amazed that that music and literature has been able to buy me a house, has been able to help me pay for my kids to go to college, has allowed me to have kids, right? So um, that from that aspect, it's, it's sort of amazing. And, you know, I've done a lot of really stupid things as well, you know, so it's amazed me that you could get drunk and, and, dodge subway trains uh, on the tracks and not get killed it was one of the things i did <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know they could and also you know my specialty uh with journalism is uh, like i used to write for hustler and i would they say i don't know i don't want to do sex but i was always doing the tough guy beat so you know interviewing mafioso or just yeah it's uh, it's pretty amazing that i haven't that i haven't that i haven't ended before now <laughs> <laughs> Or later life misadventures with narcotics, you know. I mean, you mentioned that, of course, yeah. When other people were having their problems, I wasn't. But then I remember, I remember at one point, um, you know, after I got into steroids, and which is important to say because you get into steroids, you get comfortable with needles. I remember a friend of mine saying, "Hey, you should try this thing called ketamine." I was like, ah, great, ketamine. And so I said, uh, what, what, what's the deal with ketamine? He goes, well, nobody's overdosed on it. <laughs> Which, you know, God, I think about this now and I think, man, I, just because nobody's overdosed, that doesn't mean you can't overdose on it. And I remember in, injecting myself with all this ketamine and, 
and doing what they call falling into a K-hole, which is fundamentally passing out. Um, and the only part that scared me is that I passed out so badly, I couldn't talk. I couldn't move and I couldn't talk, but I could open my eyes and I could close my eyes. But of course, because it's me, the comedic, <laughs> the comedic bounce for this was that I passed out in front of a TV that that night was showing a Beavis and Butthead Maranathon. <laughs> so I, <laughs> it was eight hours of Beavis and Butthead and I'm like Alex in a clockwork orange. I could close my eyes, I could open my eyes and that was it for eight hours of nothing but Beavis and Butthead as I like in this ketamine induced paralysis. So, so uh, yeah, it is amazing that I survived. <laughs> <laughs> all of my stupid misadventures, you know. So is there a part of you that's a real survivor, though? Can you just say, not again, that's that's it? Or do, does your personality lead you back to it again? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, there are a couple, of, uh, a couple of aspects that make su- surviving um, a, a, not a possibility, not just a probability, but a very definite possibility. Um, and that's it. I'm, I'm a paranoid. You know, I don't want to... Um, uh, or there's some great hip hop song where the guy's like, uh, uh, who's it? I think it might be ludicrous. Where he's like, you know, you think that if you if you're thinking that you're gonna catch me unawares, that's not gonna that's not gonna happen. In other words, the stupid stuff once is enough for me. You know, with stupid stuff, right? So, uh, or like Dylan says, you got to pay to keep from going through all these things twice, right? I'm not. I'm not, uh, I'm not making the same mistake often. So. Yes. So does that mean that you're still doing bodybuilding and keeping incredibly fit? Uh, I'm keeping incredibly fit. I'm obsessed. Um, if you follow the, the book that I published, Fight, Everything You Ever Want to Know About Asking, but afraid you get your ass kicked for asking on, on Harper, <laughs> Harper Collins. Uh, um, I got obsessed with uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts. So, um, so I've been fighting uh, competitively now for about 25 years so that is quite hardcore isn't it that is keeping fit yeah i mean i've said before like the only reason i'm in shape enough to do oxbow is because you know i'm in shape enough to compete with brazilian jiu-jitsu or i haven't done mma in 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 about 10 years you know um and it's only because i realize you know, at the age of 48, I don't have an MMA career in front of me, so I want to get, get good at something. So let me focus on one thing. What do I want to focus on? Well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I'm actually a world champ in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've competed a whole bunch. Flipping hell. And got, and got a bunch of gold medals here. So, <laughs> uh, But uh, then the shutdown has sort of fucked up my, my, my plan. I, you know, I've not, I've not been able to train with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because you have to do it with other people since february of last year but i'm hoping with the vaccine so forth that i can start again this year sometime yes so look just last question i mean if you could have said something to a a 16 or 18 year old self that you could have just kind of whispered to i just wondered if there was some something you think actually just this little bit of advice as you you know yeah i i think i think the one thing i would have said to my young self is um work harder (laughs) um it um i I mean the amount of uh people like say now like hey man how do you you know how do you do all this stuff now i go well i don't really sleep that much you know um i mean now i've kind of eased up and i'm sleeping maybe more normally and 
the, or, you know, relatively speaking. But man, when I was 16, you know, there was just a lot of, I, I wasn't using my time efficiently. You know, I mean, if you think about, um, say, Serenade in Red, that was a year that not only did I write A Long Slow Screw, the novel, but I also uh, was in, um, did some work with Gus Van Sant, some TV commercials and some, some independent film work. And I wrote all the lyrics to Serenade Red and recorded the record. And I mean, it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And there's no, I think I put out Fear, Power, God, that spoken word compilation with, um, you know, Anton LaVey and Charles Manson and Lydia Lunch and Allen Ginsberg on it. So it was just like, there's no, you know, this, this you need to be more productive. Right. I, 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 that's exactly what I would have told. Yeah, bodybuilding is fine at 16, but you got to get this other stuff cracking. Um, time's wasting. That's what I would have told my 16-year-old self. So yes, and you've yes, and I oh. and I probably and I probably would have gone to law school. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Did you say Charles Manson? You you sort of yes, uh... yeah. <laughs> our our longtime friendship for the the departed uh, Charles Manson. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, I, I wrote him, I think, in 83 or 84, and we had a correspondence, and then I ended up putting him on Fear, Power, God, which was a spoken word compilation, uh, one of the first spoken word compilations that Henry Rollins, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Lydia Lunch, uh, Anton LaVey from the Church of Satan, Manson, and a few others. That, yes. That, uh, that did, it was 86, 87, I think that came out. So. And, and, and how did you find Charles? He's such a character. Um, I, you know, disappointing is maybe a good word, you know. It's, <laughs> you know, he's just got, he's got a, he had a hustle. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I mean, it's hard to deal with people that you can't deal. Like I'm, I'm a straight shooter in that, in that regard. So, and these guys were players, right? So he puts me in touch with uh, family, from the Manson family that still existed in Big Bear. And then right away, these people are trying to suborn you and say, hey, why don't you send me this? Give me that. Give me this. I don't know. Fuck it. You're dealing with a New Yorker. And then it ended up coming to, it ended up badly with them threatening me and me saying, oh, they're threatening me? (laughs) (laughs) Here's my schedule and here's my address. And you want to show up anytime. You're welcome to show up anytime. And this is when I was in the midst of you know, my most aggressive steroid use. And not only that, I was a, a federal firearms licensed dealer. So I was a gun, uh, had, had a trunk full of gun. I was just, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was my most excessively paranoid. I had this big attack dog, you know, Rottweiler. And it was like, you want to come at me, now's the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, our, our association ended up badly. So... <laughs> and did you uh, that's a great one um did you i regret I, re- I regretted that actually though because you know as tough as you think you are you can't watch over everything right like i can't see my car from where i'm sitting now you know there could be people out there cut my brake lines i don't know you know so it's to as tough as you want to be you can always be gotten to that's a, a lesson if anything you learn from the manson family that that should be one of them yes absolutely and did you just lastly did you keep the turntable that you were given um i now my, my my mom is not a she's not a um a hoarder um i i really wished 
that I had that and my Lionel train set. I understand the Lionel train set has kept its value, but these are things I had when I was two or three that I really wished I had. Um, the seven inches, the 45s were, uh, I may have those. I may still have those, so. Fantastic, that's amazing. God, I love that. Yes, well, look, thank you. And um, this has been amazing. Thank you for your time. And when I um, put it out, I can always send you a link and then you can always use it elsewhere. Yep. But. Um, yep. God, I'm looking, looking forward to uh, yes, hearing your new new material. Uh, it, it'll be it, it'll it's next year, isn't it? Nominally different. <coughs> I mean, <coughs> excuse me. People who are ready for who understand Oxbow will understand everything that that means, you know. Um, but I just uh, if you're in, you're in, and if you're not, then I should listen to other stuff. But it. Uh, I very definitely wanted to spend a lot of time telling these guys we either have to do this thing this way in a different way or stop making music because I don't want to uh, there's certain words I, I no longer want to see in Oxbow reviews um, and because it doesn't really coordinate with how I feel and this record is a pretty accurate indication of how I feel now so um, you either come for the ride or you know God love you. There are other records you could listen to. Yes. Did you write it? Sorry. Did you write it during the last year in the lockdown or was it written before the lockdown? It was written before the lockdown. Because right. if, you, if you think that the fact that I sang, oh, I did all the lyrics in July. Yes. So, I mean, I, no, sorry, not, I sang all the vocals in July. So the lyrics were already written by then. I, the, right. the lyrics were written... Uh, let's see. So lockdown was 2020. Lyrics were written maybe 2018. All there. Yeah, yeah that brings you brings you up to yeah, between 2016 and 2018. Interesting you know. political time, Jesus. Um, yeah, except for the fact that uh, the, if you listen to Thin Black Duke, the, the if you if you want if you if you're thinking about it from the point of view of uh, the the diary thing, it would have to pick up the lyric writing for this would probably pick up around 2012 2013, when uh, you know there were starting to be major changes in my life, and that's when I kind of started to head into having my first divorce, first and only divorce. Um, so, um, so it's probably it, yeah, hence the name Love's Holiday. Um, it's probably, <laughs> if you wanted to try to make a one-to-one -one correlation, you might do it there. But... Straight there. Yes. Jesus Christ. Anyway, it's amazing. Look, well, thank you ever so much for your time and, um, I'll keep in touch, but, uh, take care of yourself and have a nice day. You too. See you, David. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. And that is showbiz. No, that's the end of the interview. Um, that was Eugene Robinson from the band Oxbow. If you want to know any more information, just go to their website, lots of W's dot, then theoxbow.com, or just Google Oxbow, Eugene Robinson. It's all there. Anyway, this is uh, The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Check them out. They are Amazing. Well, they'll send you to sleep. Um, thank you. Goodbye.